Okay, this is um, reading week for a specific school that one of my professors had been at, Dan Albright, went to school there. God rest his soul. So I'm just taking extra time this week to join with them. It's Graduate Theological Union and it's reading week for them. And I thought I'd post a quick note here because I have completed some other readings and I've posted some things on other social networks. But this is kind of like a uh, just chatting out on the front porch with somebody uh, type uh, recording. First of all, it's um, Canto, let's see, 32. And I know that everybody has their interpretations of it, but I see in there, quote, Ave Maria, gratia plena. And I loved how Harry Connick sang that years ago. I don't think I've ever heard anybody sing it any better than him. Um, I could try to imitate him, but I, I won't. Um, let me back up here just toward the beginning because there was a surprise. So the Theodicos, um, Mary is here, and I believe this is her first appearance, although she's been alluded to many times. And so Dante and his guide, um, who happens to be uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, are gazing upon her and uh, as an entrant, She's kind of at an entryway of one of the higher levels. Like you really can't get any farther in heaven until you actually face Theodicus. Um, and I think it's a fair point. Even uh, her mother's mentioned, Anne, or Anna, who's mentioned um, the grandmother of Jesus. And, and I think it's good to maintain the idea of family there. But there is a surprise entrance. So... The entrance has to do with Rachel. I don't know how much you pick up here. There could be background noise, but I just typically hang out. When I used to do podcasting and everything before, my wife used to homeschool, so you'd hear things in the background like the kids running around. It's right here at the beginning. It says, intent on his delight, that contemplator, the office of a teacher took unasked. So basically Bernard of Clairvaux jumped into this role. First we had Virgil, then we had Beatrice. Now uh, we have uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who's quite a heavy hitter in the Middle Ages. But it's like, there's a note of sarcasm there almost like here, is someone taking the role of teacher unasked. Like, who asked you? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Mary is basically seen surrounded by many people, and basically, like I said, they're kind of the gateway or the guard for going higher in heaven. I could almost visualize them in full armor. I don't know much about anime stuff, but one of my sons actually likes anime. I just think that the 
old guard basically is the way they're portraying it in some of these newer cartoons is kind of interesting. I'm not so sure about the wound. It wasn't spoken of, but here we go. The one so beautiful at Mary's feet is she who opened and who made the wound, which Mary closed again, and then anointed, in order which up there the third seats make. Rachel, beneath her sits Beatrice, as thou proceedeth. Now bear in mind, I had a pastor tell me, a family pastor, this is the kind of person who's overseeing like all the children's ministries, at one point, I won't give you his name, told me that college ministry was children's ministry. It was all just about children. And I would just like to say to that person, it's catechesis. It's catechesis. And that's what this all is all the way through. If you haven't experienced catechesis, then it's your own fault if you're in church your whole life. I think Amy Grant sang a song about that called Fat, Fat, Fat Little Baby. Then here are some of the other ladies chiming in. Sarah, Rebecca, Judith, and she who was that singer's ancestress, who said when he was grieving for his sin, Have mercy on me. Thou canst thus behold downward from rank to rank, as each I name, and through the rows decline from leaf to leaf, descending from the seventh row of seats, even as above it Hebrew women follow, dividing all the tresses of the flower, for in accordance with the, out, with the attitude their faith assumed toward Christ, these women form the wall which separates the sacred steps. So we're not just talking double entendre here. We're talking about the rose being the new Jerusalem. This is the shape that Dante believed that it took in his visions. And so it ever ascended upward, and it wasn't like climbing another mountain, like a seven-story mountain or seven-layer mountain. I can't remember, seven-layer seven cake. I don't know what it's called, but whatever, however you picture the four-square church to be or the four-square city to be or whether you think it has a temple or not, Dante believed that it was in the shape of a flower, a rose, and each petal as they climbed higher and higher was uh, basically guarded by certain levels and people were celebrating and everything as well on each level. But you just can't assume that you can climb any higher up into the Christian faith without recognizing the family of God. Now, I just want to point out that Augustine is mentioned in here as well, along with one of my favorites, uh, just another, uh, just a couple of people who had rules of order, uh, St. Benedict as well. And of course, Augustine had his own portrait, basically, of the heavenly city called City of God. I personally have not read City of God. I've read bits and pieces of it here and there. Um, so I might be able to give you the Cliff's Notes version of it. But um, I say all that to say that you really have to pay attention to the women in this particular passage and not just be in love with Augustine, uh, as so many different faiths are. Um, for one, she is called Theotokos in the Orthodox, and that is Mother of God. That's a 
that's language that I'm personally comfortable with. And the reason why I talk about Augustine is because we don't really know the timeline of his writings. And we think that the confessions of St. Augustine might have been, or Augustine, uh, might have been um, him as a bishop looking back, a bishopric, uh, after he left Milan and went down through um, you know, southern Italy. There's places there where he might have actually been involved as well. And then also into northern Alexandria, uh, where he was still a bishop uh, there in Africa. And so the idea of confessions isn't always something that is negative, but that's something that's used as a teaching tool. I mean, you can go into psychology if you want and say, well, we don't self-disclose unless there's a really great purpose for self-disclosing in a teaching capacity. But it's not quite the same with confessions. Confessions are kind of like the testimonies, the testimonies of the saints. And these are things that aren't necessarily prayer requests, but they are ways that the saints have shown over time that their life has led them farther and farther along to Christ. Kind of like the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. I never saw it. Well, I might have seen it, but it was edited for television, I'll tell you that much. I'm just thinking of the title. So we have the title for Mary, but then what is the title for these other ladies? I'm not going to go into all their backstories, but I think we all know who Rachel was, don't we? She was the wife of Isaac. And I'm just going to say, personally, I fell in love with Rachel. I have no idea how else to say that. I'm not talking about some person that's a contemporary of mine or ever lived. I fell in love with Rachel. I fell in love with the story in, in Genesis chapter 24. And I'll just spell this out for you a little bit. My dad preached on this years ago, and I just happened to believe it that there are types and anti-types all the way through this entire, uh, all the way through the Bible. Types point to Christ or point to something in the New Testament or point to a future thing yet to be revealed. And anti-types point against it, kind of like, but they still teach us about it. It's like apophatic or cataphatic theology. I guess you can learn what those things mean. So in Genesis chapter 24, and I'm not talking about any movie I've ever seen. I've never seen a movie that does her justice. And some people find it hard to believe that there would be a type of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But that's what my dad has basically preached. I don't know. He may have notes of it somewhere. He might have just preached it off the cuff. He's so brilliant. He's like John Wesley and George Whitfield. He could preach just extemporaneously and come up with one of the best sermons ever. So it may not even be recorded anywhere. The great reason why I fell in love with it is because the servant of Abraham is considered by some people, some scholars, including my dad, and he's certainly in the category of scholars. I think you'd have to at least give him that. He believes that the servant of Abraham was a type of the Holy Spirit going to get the bride of Christ, Isaac. Um, so you have 
just this tremendous, tremendous, beautiful word picture that develops throughout Genesis chapter 24. And I'll let you read it on your own. Like I said, I've never seen a movie that does it justice. I've never met anybody that quite does it justice. I've seen people and similar stories play out, but after all, they were the patriarchs for some reason. I know that there's, like I said earlier, I've never really seen the movie Good, Bad, and the Ugly. There was Good, Bad, and the Ugly about the patriarchs. That's one of the beautiful things about the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is that they were human beings like us, but nonetheless, God chose them just like he chose the 12 apostles out of all the people that will ever walk the face of the earth. And there's 7 billion people right now. Only 2 billion possibly are Christians. None of us have been the 12 apostles. None of us. And none of us have been the three patriarchs, or four if you want to count Jacob as well. But then again, you got to think in terms of not just thinking about men, but the family of God. And here are, here's a beautiful passage where the servant goes to get Rachel and bring her to Isaac. In many ways, I've seen this happen in my life. And I would say my marriage has probably got to be one of the closest examples that I've personally witnessed. But I, if you want to say that you ever wanted a movie-type marriage... I would say go to Genesis chapter 24 and try to top that because uh, Rachel's just, I tried to read this whole passage and I just was flooded with memories from Genesis 24 and almost visualizing it mentally because my imagination just kicks in and has for many years. I think it's just called biblical meditation and I just read through the rest of the passage and I had to read it like two or three times just to get through the canto because I was thinking about Rachel and Isaac, and how wonderful their relationship was. I don't really know that there was much wrong about what Rachel and Isaac did. I mean, their relationship just played out differently. And the same thing happened with Jacob. Jacob put his hands on the wrong kids to bless him, didn't he? So basically, all the patriarchs had their own way of doing things. And it didn't always line up with the way we think of it today. Anyway, nonetheless, back to the women in the story. And that's something that I think Dante does a very good job of. You know, in 2019, our denomination said that women could serve at the highest post, any particular level. So it's done deal. It's done. There's no going back on it. There's no changing that particular bylaw. Our top executive in our organization could be a woman. And if one ever runs for office, who knows? Maybe I'll vote for her. 